again. I was just up here. <laughs> um, I want to, well, actually, yesterday was our 33rd anniversary of our first Sunday service. That was in Renton High School in 1990. So that's pretty cool. The Lord's been faithful. We're just going to keep doing what we do, going through the Word, trusting the Holy Spirit, and, and building our relationships with one another. So keep praying for the Thailand mission trip. Uh, they'll be gone for another week or so. Tomorrow night, the Kingsman was mentioned. What we have going on tomorrow night, though, is a little different in that the, the subject in the book that we're going through is on stewardship of two things, your money and your time. In my mind, those are the most difficult stewarding <laughs> responsibilities. So we're going to have the author, actually, of the book, who's written several books, and he's a dean of a theology uh, of a seminary. He's going to be on Zoom with us uh, and just kind of talking to us about those things and then have some questions with him. So you guys have to come out tomorrow night. You have to. If you don't, well, then I'm going to sick somebody on you. That's it. All right. So would you stand? We're on Mark chapter 11, verse, we're going through chapter 12, verse 12, but I'm going to read 11, verse 27 through 33, finish that chapter. We'll do a little responsive reading. We're doing, going through the book of Psalm, uh, Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, and also every verse, just about every verse in it uh, has something about the Word, as you'll see. So I think it's a great follow-up to reading the passage, doing the responsive reading, and asking God to take and speak to us uh, this morning. So here we are, Mark 11, verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, that's Jesus, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one, one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted, counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Psalm 119, verse 73, if you'll take I'll read the odd 73 and the odd verses. If you'll take the even verse 74 and read the even verses in responsive reading. Here we go. Verse 73. Your hands have made, me made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your tender mercies come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your, your testimonies. Let's pray. So, Lord, again. Your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You said it can divide between our actual thoughts and intentions. It reads our hearts. It speaks to our hearts. And you said often, he who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. So Lord, more than just hearing some information, I'm asking you to, the things that I prepared, that you'd help me to communicate your heart from your word to your people this morning. That you'd bless this time in your word. That you would help us, Lord, to take it to heart, whatever it is, one thing or two things, just speak to us this morning. And grant when we leave this room, we leave this building, we can say, truly God is among us. So bless this time in your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So again, I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open or your device open and follow along in the main text this morning, which is Mark 11, 27 through 12, 12. So when we go to that, you can read that or, or on your, in your book. All other scriptures reference I'll have up on the screen. So if you can't keep up, you probably won't be able to, but I'm happy to send, them my, send you my notes, okay? So verse 27, then they came again to Jerusalem and as he was waiting this fourth day, and as he was waiting, walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Now those chief priests, elders, and scribes is what was called the Sanhedrin, the chief supreme court of Israel. Okay, so put them in their place. These three chief priests, scribes, and elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? That's a reasonable question for them. Because, see, they were custodians of the temple. So a reasonable question also in the, mind, in the, people of, in the minds of the people who knew that, they respected that, even though it was not a very, uh, it was pretty corrupt, but they respected those offices. Authority means simply the right to exercise power. The right to say what should be done. It's the power of one whose will and commands must be obeyed by others. By what authority do you do these things? So the what authority means what nature, what kind of authority is it? Where are your credentials? Who would you get them from? What right do you have to do these things? Now those things would be a couple, probably more, but cleansing the temple and also teaching in the temple. Who gave you this authority? Where does it come from? So here's what's going on in this story. Jesus is messing with their authority. He's challenging them in their authority. Now, nobody does that, but Jesus is not a nobody. He's a son of God. So he's challenging them. And his bitterest foes had to acknowledge this authority, evident all the way through. His authority, whatever it was, or everyone look at that, was obvious to everyone. So he would say something like this in the Sermon on the Mount several times. You have heard that it was said by the, to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, with tremendous authority. So they'd say, well, this rabbi says this, this rabbi says, but he says, you've heard these things said, but I'm telling you, I say to you. And so we read in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 28, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. He, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus challenging them. He not only spoke and taught as one having authority, but he also commanded the wind and seas. That's pretty cool. That's the kind of authority he exercised. He commanded healings. He commanded demons to do whatever he said. 
with authority. Now, these religious leaders could not do those things. And they envied him for it and killed him because of it. But they, were, they, they had met their match as far as authority goes. For three years they had heard him and seen him. And here they are once again face to face with him in the temple. By what authority do you do this? Trying to call him out. And to their demise, they should have never done that. Because Jesus is going to challenge right, right back at them. Here is the supreme son of God, proven by his words, and if you don't believe his words, his works, face to face with them, and they would not hear him, they would not acknowledge him, and they would not concede anything to him. We're in charge, not you. So Jesus masterfully challenges them about authority. In verse 29, but Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one question. Don't you? Jesus just is a master at it. Whose, scripture, whose inscription is this on this coin? Do we, give, do we pay the temple tax or do we pay the Roman tax? Oh, who, well, whose inscription is this? Well, see, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar, give to God what's his. And they left their, their mouths hanging open. What do we say? Same deal. He's gonna, I'm going to ask you one question. Here it is. And you answer me. And then I'll tell you, if you can answer this question, I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. The baptism of John, answer me. It, it really, it probably, in a couple things, it's, it's, it's talking about the whole ministry of John the Baptist. A ministry of baptism for repentance, listen, to all Israel, including these leaders who came out to them, and he would call them brood of vipers. He called them out. So in Matthew chapter 3, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, listen, confessing their sins. He's calling them to repentance with great authority. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The, the answer is, God's trying to. <laughs> who warned you? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, if you don't repent, you have something coming you're not wanting. Now, it also could be, could be, could be answer me, about John baptizing me, Jesus, to them. John publicly witnessed to the person and mission of Jesus Christ, revealed to him at his baptism. So we read in John 1, the next day John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, before he was before me. Now Jesus was born six months after John the Baptist, not before. He's, he's testifying to his, God, to his deity. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. He whom you see the Spirit descending, so it's through baptism, 
And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So this whole thing of Jesus being baptized, he said, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness when he came to John the Baptist. He said, you should be baptized. No, fulfill all righteousness. He is human, standing in, in the line with humans being baptized. He did not need to repent. He had no sin. But he's standing there as the righteous perfect human being and through that baptism God identified him the father identified Jesus as his son and so and immediately coming up from the water he saw the heavens parting the spirit descending upon him like a dove then a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased wow so my baptism what about it John 1.35, again the next day John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus, he would, he, as he walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. He's identifying him clearly. He must increase, I must decrease. He, he who comes from above is above all. He's, he's, it's just so clear. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and he came from heaven, the Son of God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Wow, he's calling him out. saying, here's the deal. If you don't believe he's the Son of God, if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't receive him as Savior, you have the wrath of God abiding on you. And so it's a, it's a stop point for every one of us in this room who are believers. That this message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Are we telling people this message? It's the authority of God by which he saves people from their sin. So if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, may I say to you gently yet directly, you need Jesus if you're going to be forgiven of your sin, made right with God, reconciled to God, receiving the Holy Spirit, be born again by the Spirit of God. And let me say to you, your life will never be the same. You'll wonder why you didn't make that decision earlier. You'll wonder maybe why you walked away from Christ as a prodigal. Why you left your relationship with him to go pursue other things. And God's saying to you, repent. Come back to Christ. So they reasoned among themselves, saying, verse 31, if we say from heaven, they, they know exactly what he would say. They're, they're not, they know exactly what's going on here. It's not like they're wondering. Why then did you not believe him? If it's from God. But if you say from men, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So Jesus leaves them no wiggle room, but they also already knew what was going on. That we are accountable to the God of heaven. That you are accountable to the God of heaven. He has spoken clearly. Do you think that God was behind John's mission? 
You see, if they recognized divine authority in John the Baptist, they must also recognize the same about Jesus. But what John the Baptist said is, he is greater than me. I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not even to open the, the, to untie his sandals. If we say from men, then, you know, we're accountable to God in heaven, but if we say from men, we're in trouble here on earth. Because the people said, it would be an uproar among them. See, everyone agreed John the Baptist was a prophet from God. And up until this time, they hadn't really, the, the Pharisees, had said, they really hadn't thought that through like they did and then realized, oh man. So what they do is they respond to save face by pleading ignorance. Well, we don't know. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But listen, they were not in the least bit ignorant. They were just simply arrogant. That's what we're dealing with here. That's what Jesus is confronting with his authority, the authority from God. So Jesus unseals the indictment against them. He does that with a parable. So we get this parable, which really is the history of Israel. And their attitude toward God's prophets. Their attitude toward what God is saying through them. And so we read, verse 12, chapter 12, Then he began to speak to them a parable. In parables, a man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the vine, wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So this parable reflects the social situation of first century Palestine, especially Galilee. Wealthy foreign landlords own large land estates, which they lease to tenant farmers. You with me? You with me? Okay. The tenants agree to cultivate the land and care for the vineyards when the landlords were away. They might have lived somewhere else completely. A contract between them designated them a portion of the crop was to be paid as rent. So that's in the, the deal, the contract. At harvest time, the owners sent their agents to collect the rent. Inevitably, tension arose between the absentee owners and the ones that were doing all the work. So here it says, a man that is representative of God. He's the owner, verse 9. And get this, this owner is very patient. He's also very generous in his patience. The vineyard is Israel. And we talked about this in our last study also. The vineyard is Israel, Psalm 80. I'm going to read a couple from Isaiah. But in Psalm 80, you might want to read that. Verses 80, 8 through 16. And I'll also read the, uh, one verse from Jeremiah. But Isaiah, I want you to read this just out of the word, just to get the, the understanding that this parable is about the nation Israel and the, lead, the corrupt leadership of the nation. So now let me sing Isaiah prophesy in chapter 5. 
Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared it out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He did everything he could. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done in my, to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God is so generous and so good and so gracious. Why then, when I expected to, it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. Now, the owner is not getting his jollies in this. But this is what's going to happen. Because they kept rebelling against the owner. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain. No rain on it. It's a pretty powerful owner, wouldn't you say? For the vineyard of the Lord, very clear. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. God planted it, dug it up, made it so it could be so fruitful, abounding, which is what happened when he called, Mo, called Mo, when he brought his people out of Egypt, beginning Egypt, and then the, the bondage, he brought them out. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. How God looked at them was just this beautiful thing that I want to help be so fruitful. And such a fruitfulness that the world would taste of it. Notice though. And the men of Judah are his peasant plant. He looked for justice. But behold oppression. For righteousness. But behold a cry for help. He's talking about how these leaders were treating his people. Jeremiah said it this way. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? God didn't even recognize it, the owner. What happened to my vineyard? The vine dressers are those in authority over Israel. The religious leaders directly here in this confrontation. What have you done to my vineyard? What have you done to my people? How have you been treating them? Why is this happening? What, what, look what's happened. And it breaks our, the Bible says that judgment is God's strange work. It breaks his heart. He talked of Israel as being the apple of his eye. It's beloved, and here the picture is of a vineyard. So notice verse 2, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. 
And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. These, he sent these servants. The prophets sent to Israel to speak to them about what God's saying. And many times those were not pleasant things to hear. But it was God seeking to turn them back to him. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the heirs will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. This one sent son, he sent his one son, of course, Jesus, separate from the prophets. But the final send. Because they rejected him. And thus, as we looked at last week, God rejected them. Last one, my son. Can you sense the intimacy of the heart of God? The mercy and grace of the heart of God? The patience and long-suffering in the heart of God? That hasn't changed because God does not change. And so, still has one son. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is reviewing the history of Israel as he's given his speech that gets him killed, by the way. <laughs> but he says, you rejected Joseph the first time, only recognizing him the second time. You rejected Moses the first time, only recognized him the second time. You rejected the prophets that God sent time and time and time again. And so in verse 51 of chapter 7, Stephen, this is, you know, this is probably what got him killed, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they kill those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. He goes on. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They don't want to hear this. They are mad, steaming mad. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand, standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Can you, are you, are you, are you picturing? Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Note that. We'll get back to that in a moment. And here we get it. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice. This is incredible. This is the essence of the authority of God. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Jesus said, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. God, in all of his sovereign 
authority. Sent his son to be the authority. The difference between death and life. Freedom and bondage. Do not charge them with this sin. Can you take that in a moment? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Stephen. Verse 9 of Mark 12. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected to become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. The stone, the chief cornerstone is none other than Jesus. Now in Psalm 118, in other words, they're going to reject and kill him. But not too many days ago, they were hailing him as Messiah as he rode in to Jerusalem at give, presenting himself as coming as the king of peace. Prophesied in Psalm 118, which is where Jesus now is drawing this quote. The stone that you rejected become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. is marvelous in our eyes that God would do this for us. This is the day the Lord... Now, we sing that song. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has... What's the day? It's not Kevin Day. <laughs> I thought that was a good joke. Just... It's the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the exact day that God had prophesied some 180,000 days before that. That's the Lord's doing. That's the authority of God over everything and all things that matter. Blessed is he who comes. Save now, I pray, O Lord. Save now. Send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes now. So they're hailing Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter's sermon, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? They had healed this man at the, at the temple. So they're putting him out there. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people of Israel, the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means has he, by what means they've been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which the builders, which, which was rejected by you builders, has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus was alive. There will be a national revival when Israel recognizes and receives Jesus at his second coming. They completely missed it in the first. In Zechariah, which is an incredible book, and I will pour on the house of, yeah, there are seven uh, visions, or ten visions that Zechariah gets. This is one. I'll pour, pour on the house of, of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they, have, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. 
In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for unclean. In that day, in his second coming, there will be a national uh, revival, if you will, a national reconciling. This, with, with, when they see him, they go, what, what are the, again, in Zechariah, what are, what are these wounds in your hands? He'll answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. It, it, actually, it, it moves, it should move our, that God in his complete and utter authority and sovereignty would ever come back a second time, would ever give them a second chance. How many of you had second chances with God? Many, if not all of us. In fact, I would say all of us have. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 12 in Mark, he began to speak to them in parables, and then in verse 12 of chapter 12, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They knew exactly what he was saying. So they left and went away. Here's the deal. With authority comes responsibility. Jesus said, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him there will be, they will ask the more. With responsibility, with authority, comes responsibility. Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy, their corruption in exercising authority, lording over the people. He's calling them out here. This is not what the authority of God ever wanted you to become. So he said, when you pray, Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to st pray standing in the synagogues on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assured, I say to you, they have their way saying, don't be like those leaders. Do not, that is not what I ever had on my heart for you. Again, Matthew, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the corners and be seen by men on the streets that they may see. They have their reward. You should, when you fast, don't be like them when you fast. All these these exercising of spiritual disciplines, if you will. When you're doing these things, don't do it like they do it. They're just doing it to be seen. Oh, he's so, they're so holy. They're so spiritual. He said in, in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he said this several times. He just calls them, Jesus calls them out. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outward, beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Mark chapter 12, then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in the long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater... Don't be like that. Now, it's telling what credentials are esteemed in our thinking. Got a great personality. A well-known athlete or a well-known entertainer or an author or a musician. Maybe it's a college degree. Maybe it's a seminary education. 
Maybe it's an ordination as a pastor or an elder. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. But let us always remember that God looks at things very differently. Captured. When God was looking for a replacement for Saul. And Samuel went. He goes, whoa, this guy, man, he's handsome. He's tall. He's, he's got to be the guy to Jesse, the dad. And God said, no, he's not the guy. You got anybody else? We got six more. Let's pray them through here. Nope, not the guy. Six, number three, four, five. And then he gets to the end. And God says, no, it's not him. And says, well, you got anybody else? <laughs> you ever feel that way like God said about you? You got anybody else? <laughs> oh, you got Kevin. <laughs> I will gladly be in that class. Because what the Lord said to Samuel, and you know it well, but here it is. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's the authority of God. It's what's going on in the heart that he sees. And he'll call it out in order to establish clearly how he sees things. What he's wanting to do. You see, these men were experts at looking and sounding so good. So righteous, so spiritual. And we are all prone to that. But inside, these men were woefully corrupt in their self-righteous envy, their arrogance, and their murderous intentions. All these things start somewhere and grow, if not attended to by what God says about how he sees my life and your life. It's convicting. One of these men was Saul of Tarsus. He became a testimony to the life-changing authority of Jesus that comes into the life and that life coming under his authority of a sinner. Saul traveled on the road to Damascus with authority to bind, punish, compel to blaspheme, imprison, and if too much resistance, put him to death. So he's on his way. He's riding the horse, if you will, on his way. And in Acts chapter 9, it says, And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Acts 26. This I also, as Paul's giving his testimony, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from where? The chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In Galatians, he says, Paul writes, If you have heard of my former conduct in Jerusalem, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And the actual language is, I had, it was like a ravenous wolf, dog, has, the, has it in, just shaking it to destroy it. 
That's how out of sync he was with the heart of God. Thinking all the time he's serving God. Yet his heart was so corrupted by the religious systems that appealed to self-righteousness and pride and all kinds of arrogance. And he had it all. He had all the credentials. He had all the trophies. He had all the diplomas. It is believed that Saul was fighting his conscience as to who this Jesus really is. And the things that he spoke, as he heard them, he couldn't get them out of his mind. Hearing of what Jesus did, he couldn't get it out of his mind. It began to bother him. And I believe that the crux of what happened, what God did, was at the stoning of Stephen. He sanctioned the murder of Stephen. They laid their, their coats. It says there in 58, we just read it. They cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's a young man, prime of his life, educated beyond hill, spiritual, physical, Hebrew of the Hebrews, Concerning the law, blameless, he said to the Philippians, which we'll be studying, I believe, very soon. His testimony. So that, here it is. He's, he's there. They're laying their coats at him. I believe he's wrestling. So when, he, when we get to, on that road to Damascus, Brother Saul saw the light. He used to tell about Brother Kev. Brother Kev, when I, was doing, when I first gave my life back to the Lord in, down in Southern California, working with a bunch of construction guys, and at lunchtime, we'd sit down, and we'd all, I'd always turn the conversation to talk about Jesus. Jesus coming, whatever. And so I became known as Brother Kev. So whenever there was a problem, they'd come up and say, Brother Kev, have you seen the light? <laughs> I, well, what's the problem? <laughs> anyway, notice verse not, uh, in Acts 9, verse 4, he said, Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Lord, moment of time, everything changed. He now was coming under the authority of Jesus Christ, and it revolutionized his whole life and where the direction he was headed. That's what Jesus does when he arrests us on our roads of disobedience and other, other things. Who are you, Lord? Then he's, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goad. There it is. Bothering him. The goad was something on the animal that kept him going in a direction. And God was sort of goading him along as he's hearing Jesus, hearing about Jesus, seeing what said, seeing Stephen's death, hearing what Stephen said, and it's just getting to him and getting to him. And now here he is on his way for another mission to kill Christians. And he's turned upside down, right side up, and then... Oh, and blind as he was for three days, it's the first time in his life when he could actually see because he saw Jesus. And so it said, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said, arise and go into the city and you will be told there what you must do. So in a moment of time, it's no longer what I want to do. It's no longer what the chief priests and scribes are telling me to do. It's what do you want me to do? And coming under that authority is the freedom that gives us sight 
that gives us a future and a hope, that gives a message for the nations, that gives us this gospel by which people are saved. And a moment in time became, what do you want me to do? So note Paul's testimony of the immediate commissioning under Jesus' authority. No schooling. That would come in life. No titles, no certificates, no diplomas. They were not needed. No applause of men. That was too dangerous. Just Saul and Jesus. What a place to be. In Acts chapter 26, Paul again giving his testimony of what happened. Jesus said, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. In Acts chapter 26, he continues, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Immediate commissioning of Saul of Tarsus. Because now his life is completely surrendered to God. Note Paul's transformed view of authority under Jesus. It's beautiful. To the Corinthians he said, For even if I should boast somewhat more about my, our authority, which the Lord gave us, notice, for edification and not for your destruction. I shall not be ashamed. That's God's authority operating in leadership. It's for edification. It's for building people up. It's for ministering to them as servants. In, in 2 Corinthians, he goes on, verse 10, Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. So that's not putting aside. There needs to be this, in fact, Paul even said that the, the gospel, the Bible, when taught, is for sometimes rebuke. See, that was the problem with the, these leaders. They didn't want to hear it. But we, knowing God's authority for us is to build us up and to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless. These things that God does, his authority is like that. Second Thessalonians says, not because we do not have authority, Paul, to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So I'm just going to give you, to close, I can have the worship team come out. Just a starting list of seven things from these verses. As to the disciple and the authority of Jesus. Number one, Jesus' authority commands repentance and baptism. Repentance to be saved, baptism, that's the outward expression, but then also we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And many times repentance is necessary to put that right with God. Jesus' authority promises forgiveness and salvation. Say amen. His authority promises salvation Forgiveness and salvation. It's Jesus' authority that makes us ministers. Not lords, ministers, servants. It's Jesus' authority that sends us to open eyes and turn people to God. Through His Holy Spirit, by His authority, through our lives, He does that. I can't think of a greater purpose in life 
and being used by God for that. Jesus' authority sends us to open eyes and turn to God. His authority is for edification. His authority is for making us examples that people can follow. May God help us. Amen. Stand with us. Stand with us and let's sing a song and I'll close in prayer.